0: Welcome to Boston Basic Income. This week's topic is moral framing. Both arguments for and against basic income are often framed in moral terms. Is this effective and why? We have five featured guests with us here today. Carl Weiderquist, Bethany Burham, Derek Van Gorder, Kate McFarland, and Michael Lewis. So I wanna start the discussion by going around the room to our featured guests and asking the question, to what extent is it useful to frame basic income as a moral issue, both in our thinking and our communication? What kind of moral framing is appropriate and why? We'll start with Carl and then we'll go to Bethany and then Derek. Go ahead, Carl.
1: I've been talking about moral issues, basic income for a long time, but I owe what I'm about to say to James Robichau, who has said to me that really, the, he put it this way, is that The issue is, are we gonna give money even to people who don't work or not? You've gotta accept that to have basic income and a lot of things, and it's hard for people morally to accept that, people who believe if you do not work, you shall not eat. And we have to address this issue. A lot of the empirical issues that people bring up, can we afford it? Will it cause inflation? Nobody will work if we does it. And what if nobody works if we do it? A lot of these are really people bring these up because they object to the idea that someone should get money who doesn't work, unless they're rich. And most people aren't bothered by people who are rich getting money without working. So we have to address that issue. And I believe that the best way to address that issue is with strong counterattacks. Not saying, oh, you know, they, they won't work, you know, they're not gonna work that much less. It's not so bad to give it a is that what we have, we don't, we, we don't allow people to work for themselves. You have to work for somebody who has money and we have a hierarchy of who has money and who can give you a job or become your client. And with that money, you've got to go and buy things made out of resources and the people who own the resources Uh, You know, a landlord is going to get like a third to the half of whatever you work for. You are working for your landlord uh, for an awfully long time until you can get enough money to own your own home. And even then, even most people don't even many, many people don't even make it to that. You're working for a hierarchy of people. We work for a hierarchy. We do not have people who can work for themselves, nor do we have a circle of obligation where we all work for each other. The more money you have, the more people who work for you, less work you have to do for each other. That is something akin to slavery. You have a choice of masters, but a choice of masters is not freedom. And we need to attack on this ground. Really, the moral ground is really all there is to it.
0: Okay, interesting. Let's go to Bethany and then Derek and then Kate.
2: I guess on the one hand, if what people value is going to drive how they feel about basic income, you could make a case certainly for trying to appeal to people's values when talking about basic income and maybe appealing to the broadest set of people possible. So like the most universal kinds of values possible. Uh, But something else that I wanna add uh, that that I do a lot with in my work is that people's morality is not necessarily fixed. It's shaped by the incentives and other cultural factors going on around them. And sometimes it's sticky. Sometimes it takes a long time to change. Sometimes it changes quickly but that's really relevant here for a couple of reasons. So one reason is that you might be able to change people's current incentives in a way that changed their moral opposition to basic income, rather than starting with the morals. That's one possibility. I don't know how flexible that would be, but that's one thing to keep in mind. And I think something that I'm even more confident about is that if we were to implement a basic income, that would change a lot of people's incentives to have moral opposition to basic income, obviously. And so I think people's morals would then shift quite easily. Um, So I think that's important because otherwise you might think, well, people really value work and they like really want everyone to have to work. And that's always going to be the case. So we need to like accommodate that about people. Whereas the view I would have is that people value work because they have to work to survive as Carl Whitequist said. So it's really helpful if you espouse that kind of ideology, it will help you get ahead. It'll help you in first that your friends and family to get ahead, because that's what we need to do to survive in our community and our culture right now. And I think that's a lot of where if you don't work you don't eat comes from as an ideology so if we change the structure of how people are getting their money how people are getting their resources i think at that point the morality would change with it and we wouldn't feel that way anymore just as carl nicely points out we don't feel that way about wealthy people today and there were other periods of time where certain people were exempt from that as well so uh, that i'm confident of whether we could sort of change things enough to change the, the ideology via the incentives now without implementing a basic income i don't know but you could imagine something that kind of works in stages where we sort of erode the current system a bit and then like the morality around work changes a bit and sort of happens gradually. So that would be something to explore as well.
0: Okay, good stuff. Let's go to Derek and then Kate and then Michael.
3: Ever since I started learning about basic income and kind of uh, educating myself more about it and the economics of it, there's a thought experiment I run sometimes, which is I imagine a world without injustice or without immorality. Now, in this world, there kind of aren't these, uh, these moral debates uh, to have, certainly not really with the same, uh, the same rigor that we have them today. But, you know, it's, it's not obvious that that world would always have a basic income, right? In this world, people would be generally trying their best to make society better, make the economy better, help things work, but they might not always know how to do that. Sometimes people just don't know that something's an option. They don't know that there's better ways to solve problems than they are at present. And so that world probably would uh, would look a lot nicer than ours. It would be a lot better. There'd be less poverty, probably. Maybe the whole world would sort of look like what many Americans might sort of fantasize Scandinavian uh, or other European uh, welfare states look like, that sort of thing. But the fact is, there would still be poverty. There would still be poverty because those economies would, would lack an efficient way of distributing access to goods, not to just some people, not just to rich people or wealthy people, and not just to people who work, but literally to... everyone if you don't have a mechanism like that to some extent poverty will still exist and i guess i sort of wonder in our world we have that big problem in common you know we still have poverty we've taken a lot of steps to try to reduce it to ameliorate it but chronic poverty you know is with us uh, and remains with us and so when i consider that in our world our world where we do have morality is really an important factor and we do have to have discussions about morality we have to figure out how it works and figure out how how it helps or doesn't help us, that sort of thing. You know, we should also consider that our economists, our policymakers, our politicians, people who are tasked with kind of managing and building our economies in in a significant way, they have not until very, very recently uh, considered the idea of basic income with any seriousness. It just wasn't, it's not what economists write papers about. Uh, No one's really studied it with any seriousness, except for um, some people that I happen to be fortunate enough to, to share this room with. And I think they, they can probably attest to what it must feel like to work for, for years on an idea that just isn't gaining traction. So I think that I found that in my experience when I'm talking to people about basic income, uh, morality is something I, I have to think really hard about and to deal with. But when I consider that you know basic income on its own without any other additional policy attached to it, it makes the poorest person richer. It makes the richest person richer. It makes businesses more profitable and it creates more production of goods I mean to, to, until you get to some imaginable point where the basic income is too high right that's always true when you consider all that really the question is you know why 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 wouldn't we why wouldn't we do it and so I think that there are really really important moral discussions to have about basic income but for me that begins with the question why are we convinced we have to deserve it who do we have to prove to whom do we have to prove that humanity as a whole deserves more prosperity. I think that belief that we have to prove it is something that many basic income advocates and also many basic income opponents believe very strongly.
0: Okay, thanks, Derek. Let's go to Kate and then Michael.
4: Okay, so there's already a lot of interesting stuff that it's very tempting to comment on, but I'm going to go back to the question as originally posed and just give a different approach to that. The question recall, was, to what extent is it useful to frame basic income as a moral issue? At like, that's how it started. Right there, I already have two issues with the question that I want to bring up. First, um, you asked to what extent is it useful to frame basic income as a moral issue? I don't agree that the choice is necessarily a matter of usefulness. There might be situations in which just simply correct or incorrect to frame basic income as a moral issue where usefulness has nothing to do with it. And I just found this way of posing the question intriguing, Alex. I mean, I have a hunch here that maybe you're thinking about the use of a frame for a discourse in a similar way as you're thinking about the moral language which within the, the discourse we're studying itself. I know you don't like framing disputes about basic income in terms of concepts like justice and rights. So I'm wondering if you're also intentionally avoiding framing the question framing the frame question itself um, in terms that suggest that there are some kind of objective standards of correctness and incorrectness. But I do think that there is a role for objective standards in the meta discourse, if you will, in the frame question itself, especially epistemic standards like internal consistency with the speaker's other expressed beliefs and values. So if we say the speaker should frame basic income as a moral issue, Only if that's the frame that's consistent with that other, with that speaker's other commitments, then that's not a question of usefulness. It's a question of epistemic responsibility and integrity. Be consistent, be accurate in representing your own beliefs and values. You know, I think these are just good principles. And that brings me to the second issue with the question you asked, posed out of the blue. The answer needs to be context sensitive, and in some contexts, it needs to be speaker relative. And there are some contexts in which the speaker's belief shouldn't matter to the answer. If basic income is being discussed in an ethics class, for example, then obviously it should be framed as a moral issue. These are the aspects that should be addressed. If it's being discussed say in an economics class, then I don't know, maybe it depends on the type of economics but maybe not necessarily uh, the moral issue. And when I wrote about basic income as a news reporter, it, I wasn't moralizing there. My goal is just to be as accurate as possible in describing how the subjects of my reports thought and wrote themselves about basic income. Of course, I presume that in the context of this webcast, you're mainly interested in situations in which someone is advocating for or against basic income. And this is where I contend that it's in fact really important that the appropriate frame does vary according to the speaker, according to the speaker's worldview, evaluative framework, and other relevant beliefs. I'm not saying that I'm a relativist in any way, the speaker might have false beliefs, they might have values that they should reconsider, I'm not advocating relativism, but simply honesty and consistency. These speakers should frame their own support or opposition to basic income in a way that reflects what they actually believe and what they actually value, unless they're just playing devil's advocate for a debate or some other type of role-playing. Um, the fact of the matter is that people support basic income for many different reasons. Some people believe that basic income is required as a matter of social justice, while others believe that it's a practical solution for certain desired ends that may be independently specified. If you talk to advocates, there's simply no broad consensus. And likewise, people oppose basic income for different reasons. As Carl was talking about, many people think that the very idea is morally egregious because you're giving money to people who haven't earned it. But other people think it's a good idea in principle, but just not practicable. I just think that if someone believes basic income is a moral issue, then they should frame it as a moral issue. If someone believes that the moral issues lie further upstream, and that the decision to adopt a basic income per se is just an issue to be adjudicated on grounds of feasibility or practicality or whatever, then they should likewise frame it as such. So it's partly a matter of honesty and integrity, but it's also, I believe, the only way to reveal the true points of agreement and disagreement among basic income supporters and opponents, there's a lot of alleged agreement about basic income that itself is merely superficial and masks a lot of underlying disagreement about how society should be structured. Some of this has actually already come up <laughs> in my room, and this all needs to be exposed if people are going to have substantive and productive conversations about basic income and how that policy should enter into an overall policy package and overall of society restructuring of society. Um, Just one example of this, and then just think about the case of the discussion over the question about basic income experiments. What can they show us? Are they worthwhile? If someone believes that basic income just is morally required, or if they believe that basic income just is morally unfair, then they're in their right to speak out against the attention that's often lavished on basic income experiments. For them, it's not a question of whether basic income works, it's just right or wrong. But there are plenty of people, obviously, who do believe that basic income can be tested empirically. And this is evidence that these people don't think of basic income per se in terms of fundamental morality. And I don't think that we should pressure experimentalists or empiricists to frame their projects in terms of justice and rights or anything else. And let everyone explain honestly what they're doing and why.
0: There's lots of interesting stuff in there that we will definitely get into. Let's go to Michael for opening thoughts.
5: My answer is similar to Carl's, although I share some of um, Kate's thoughts about the framing of the question, but I'll put that aside. But my answer is similar to Carl's in the sense that a lot of folks, not everyone, but a lot of folks will oppose basic income. In my experience, they oppose it on moral grounds. And one of them is this idea that people, if they're not rich, as Carl said, that people who are not rich, who are able-bodied and able-minded, they should sell their labor uh, in return for any income they receive. Shouldn't give people something for nothing, and things like that is framed in different ways, but it's opposed among some opponents on moral grounds. And given that reality, it seems to me that if advocates have any shot of getting basic income enacted one day, then some among them, some among the advocates, should be trying to address the moral objections to basic income. So to me, it's almost as if we have no choice. I mean, if we want to have a shadow of this happening, then someone, not everyone, right? As Kate said, people can focus on what they like to do and what they specialize in. But it seems to me that it's probably prudent, right? To have someone trying to address the moral objections since that's a dominant way that people oppose it. So it's useful in that sense, I think. I also have some thoughts about Bethany's comments. I agree that people's values or their moral positions are flexible potentially, they can change. I don't think they're fixed forever. And I also agree that if we could somehow get a basic income enacted, that may change people's values or moral stances. But the problem is that, or what might be the problem is that it's gonna be very, very hard to get a basic income enacted to see if it changes people's moral positions if people are morally opposed to it. I mean, because, I mean, assuming uh, it's got to get through some kind of legislature and it's got to get some kind of public support if people are opposing it on moral grounds we might not be able to get to see if we can change their views by getting it enact- enacted I mean I mean it's you got to get it, you got to somehow get it through and getting it through might require addressing the moral objections So I don't so in a way I don't think we have any choice right And when I say we I don't I don't think everyone must do it I don't think everyone needs to do it but I'm saying that it's probably a good idea if someone addresses the moral objections that's why I think uh, moral framing is relevant and is useful.
0: Okay, I think those are some great points, and I certainly agree that we need to address moral objections. I think most people here would agree with that. The question is whether we have to get moralistic ourselves in addressing moral objections, or is there a way to say, well, you might feel that this is right or this is wrong, nevertheless, this is true. And this is how things work, and it can't work any other way or something like that, right? And to kind of speak to what Carl was saying about people deserving food because they work, you know, we can ask the question, why in our culture do we want able-bodied people to earn a living? And I think Bethany got into this a little bit. But the fact that we feel this way, people are worried that basic income is a handout. And then, you know, in order to address their concerns, a lot of times we kind of fall into saying, no, basic income is actually not a handout. It's we're giving it to people because they deserve it or something like that is that a necessary thing to do or can we say yeah of course it's a handout and this is why a handout is good or something like that so do we have to agree with their kind of moral position in order to convince them or can we address the moral objections without agreeing with their moral premises and to, to get back to kind of what bethany was saying we can ask To what extent is morality and culture in general endogenous or contingent on the real constraints of the environment we're trying to survive in? Does it matter whether basic income is something that is compatible with people's morality or do we have to sneak in and, and make it compatible with people's morality and then introduce the basic income and then the morality changes? Or can it be the other way around? I think these are all a lot of the questions that people have brought up. Let's go to Derek.
3: Um, I, I just want to say really briefly that what Michael was saying about the chicken and egg problem, right? Like, I think that's important. And I might even go so far as to sort of to say and kind of agree with him that like the moral issue, if we want to use that as a broad sense, like is uh, like you can't if people determining policy uh, have certain, let's say unexamined beliefs that are putting a certain policy in place, like you can't, there's no way to change the policy without addressing those first. So I think it's really important in the sense that like we have to acknowledge that any discussion that we get into advocating the concept can become a, a moral or at least a very charged normative discussion of some kinds. So we, we have to figure out how to, how to address it, but you know, what is the right way to respond to that? Like if someone is making this moral claim, right, about work and about working for money, which is like Carl was saying, really important, how are they addressing it? And what's the best way to respond? Michael, I think said that, you know, there's a belief you run into, which is that, you know, people who are not rich should have to sell their labor to get money. But, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with opponents of basic income and opponents of similar projects. They never (laughs) phrase it that way. They usually have a kind of sort of deep intuition either that there's something useful about people sort of being able to get rich and they wanna sort of protect that, they have this inclination to do that, or they might just feel that, you know, it's not relevant to helping the poor. They're saying, well, if, you, if you're poor and you wanna do better, you, you know, you need, you need to do that. And if you push them on that, that usually gets back to some, some descriptive grounding about how, well, obviously, you know, if, if nobody works, then society collapses, right? There usually are these points of entry um, to sort of get people to examine why they have this intuition. And so I think that's important. For for me, what's important is when I encounter a belief like this, we want to make sure we don't strawman it. We want to make sure that we're looking for, like, to what extent in basic income world, in the world that we would like to live in, is there actually a sort of an important role, an important function right? That this, that this kind of feeling or this intuition would actually help, right? Once we've sort of made the system work better. That's sort of how, how I look at it. So when I encounter moral objections to basic income, rather than sort of fighting them or debating them, I usually find something within the, the moral statement that I can sort of affirm or find common ground with, and then incorporate it into this policy tool that I think um, will, will help everything work better.
0: I like that. And I liked what you said before about Uh, What if we imagined a world without morality? And then a question we can ask about this world is, would something be missing? What would be missing? Would we benefit from introducing a moral framework that would help us cooperate better, would help culture o- operate more efficiently or get things done, be more prosperous, that kind of thing. And, you know, you could ask whether we would end up with the same, uh, moral beliefs that we have now or something different, uh, and depending on whether we have basic income in this world, the answer might be
1: different too. Let's go to Carl. Yeah, I think you have to address these issues because people are not going to fail to notice that this policy uh, amounts to giving people money who don't work. And they, uh, although they will very often fail to notice that the idea of property ownership uh, gives money to people who don't work and they will fail to notice that all the big money is from owning stuff, not from doing stuff and your stuff works for you. and people are not going to fail to notice this. So we can't sidestep this issue. And they're not going to it, frame it the way I do, which is that what you mean is people who aren't wealthy have to work. They'll say everybody has to work. And, you can, uh, and I, I frame it that way to confront them with this moral issue uh, that really what they're saying is the, the poor have to work and they have to work for the wealthy who can live off the stuff they own. And I don't think the moral response is the only response you have to give, but this is going to have to be confronted at some points or another. You need people who are making this argument, and people will change their argument and say, Well, if nobody worked, if nobody worked, then the system would collapse. Well, they'll say that, but you can show them all the evidence that system, you know, some people will work and the system won't collapse. And they'll say, Well, but that's unfair to the people who are working if some people who aren't working do it, because we all have to work because at least somebody has to work, therefore we all have to work. And then you confront them with, well, the wealthy people aren't working, or you can confront them like this. When, 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 I, I wanna go farther than what Derek said when he first spoke, which was that you know we're always gonna have some poverty when you don't have basic income, which is true, because whenever you have conditions, you always have somebody who doesn't meet the conditions or the conditions are meaningless. Yeah, they're gonna be testing those limits and you're going to have poverty for those people who are not meeting those limits. And so that means you know, not only are you always going to have poverty unless you have some universal program like basic income, but also you're not just accepting it, but you're using it. You're saying if you support a, non-U, a conditional po- approach to poverty, you mean you do not want poverty to go away because you want poverty and homelessness and people living on the street and eating out of dumpsters to exist to give everyone the incentive to meet your conditions, no matter what those conditions are. That's what conditionality requires. If you want a conditional approach to poverty, you're using poverty as a threat. And you're using it as a specific kind of threat to get the non-wealthy, the most vulnerable people to perform services for the wealthy. That's how you get money. That's the only way you can get money in an economy that is, that is based on ownership is, is if you don't own, if you're poor, you provide services for the people who do own. You're not only saying that it's good to put the 99% in that position, but also to threaten them with poverty if they don't do what you're told. So um, I, I come at this with a lot of moral indignation that I want, as a basic income supporter, I want non-wealthy people who don't work to, Make less money than everybody to have less money than everybody else. That's what it means to be a basic income supporter. You, as a basic income opponent, you want non-wealthy people to have nothing, to be to be threatened with with poverty, starvation, living on the street, homelessness, malnutrition, eating out of dumpsters. You want that to be the consequence of working, of of not working for whatever project it is you want them to work for. That is your condition. My condition is they make less money, but we don't starve them to death. And uh, you're not going to capture the moral ground when, uh, when you're making that uh, against the idea, well, we'll just have, have them earn less on a basic income.
6: I
0: think you bring up a good point about incentives. If you want there to be poverty, then you kind of want the threat of poverty to be the incentive for for people to contribute. And you can ask them that. You can say, is the reason you don't want to provide basic income because you need people an incentive, give people an incentive to work so they're not poor or something like that. And then if they say yes, uh, and you make it about the incentives, you can ask, well, what kinds of incentives do we need to ensure that all the work that society needs done uh, gets done? you <laughs> And, and then I think we can kind of get more into your perspective, which is that we don't need the threat of poverty in order to provide an incentive for uh, getting everything done that we need done. But I think that also pulls us away from the moral framing a little bit, if you kind of frame it the way I just framed it. And it says like, well, you know, how much work do we need to uh, produce all the stuff we need to produce? And then if you kind of figure that out, then you might say, well, some people aren't working in this world, you know, because we don't necessarily need everyone to work. We just need the incentives to be such that you know, the right amount of stuff is produced for our society. So that's how I would address the moral objection without coming from a moral indignation perspective. Let's go to Michael.
5: I have a response to both Alex and Derek, um, and partly something Alex said earlier, and I think what you, what you just said before in a different way. Um, I don't think that um, that to address the moral objections, you have to become a moral philosopher and... Argue on those grounds. I'm not suggesting that um, that everyone who's a basic income supporter has to do that. Um, I think there are ways to do that. Um, like I think you prefer to do by focusing on focusing on economics, right, and how economies work and macroeconomic matters. I, I think that's a way to do it. Um, um, in, the, in the 20 years I've been writing about it. I've done that sometimes. Right. Um, so I, I'm not opposed to that at all. And that could work. Um, but I don't think that That's all we can do right because because I, I because I think that that, and this is where I try to go, connect to Derek's point. Um, I don't know who you've been talking to, but um, I've talked to people who actually they they don't support basic income, not because they think um, if we had one, uh, not enough folks would work or or sell what I call sell their labor. And they talk about it. They, they say work. I say sell their labor because they're really talking about that, right? Um, so they don't say. You know, not enough woodwork. I mean, they, 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 like, it's almost as if whether or not a basic income led to a work disincentive doesn't matter. It's just wrong. It's morally wrong to give people who can work something for nothing, regardless of the economic effects of that, uh, incentive effects of that. It's just wrong, right? Um, I've heard po- folks say that again and again and again. And people making that argument. I don't think you're going to address that by talking about the macroeconomic benefits of basic income. Um, that's where you do need at least some people, not, a, not, not Alex, not me, not everyone, but, but someone like Carl, I think, or someone else, they, they should be trying to address the, more, um, I'll say the pure moral argument, right? It's not about economics, it's, about, it's just wrong, right? To give people money they don't work for. Um, um, I've heard that over and over and over again. 20 years we're talking about this right
0: so i'm I'm curious really quick when you encounter one of these people who say giving people money they didn't earn is just wrong when you ask them why is it wrong what do they say
5: Uh, i do ask that question and typically they'll say because if people are able to work and able to you know they're physically able cognitively able uh, then they don't have the right to ask the rest of us to take care of them, they should take care of themselves, right? Something, something along those lines, right? Um, and 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 so a person like that, they like it's not that they don't care about the economy, right? They but like people can care about the economy and how it works, but they may not. But they also may care about this small position, this position, position they have, right? They may care about this this, position, this other position, and so they they may be willing to. To trade off, I'll say you know an optimal economy, right? Uh, to you know, good enough because they wanted you know it's good enough if you make those lazy folks work for their income, right? So so the, so it's 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 an idea that that it's just wrong morally to have others take care of those who can take care of themselves. That's the That's, that's the answer I get.
0: Okay, I hear that too. I hear people say that, and the question I usually ask someone like that is well, if we don't really need that much more work to be done or something like that, would you support creating work for people to do just so they can they can earn their money? We're making up the work as an excuse to pay them. And then I think it starts to get the gears turning in their head, like, do I really want handouts to just be hidden, you know, behind a job or something like that. Like, it's still a handout. You're giving people a job as a way of getting them money. I think in in terms of reality, in terms of how the economy works, there isn't a choice between handing people money and not handing people money. It's just whether we do it explicitly or whether we hide it behind jobs or something like that. Then people will say, well, no, that's never the case. The work is always useful. You know, the private sector only ever creates uh, productive jobs, that kind of thing. But then you get into an argument about that. And now you're talking about the economics. You're not talking about morality anymore. Uh, And I think that's an important discussion to have because, you know, I think I think it's not accurate to say that, you know, the labor market is just efficient and people are being paid for useful work in general uh, in the economy. We are kind of employing people as an excuse as an excuse to pay them. Let's go to Bethany. Go ahead, Bethany
2: yeah thanks so a few things one thing when it comes to sort of what I think many of you already know this but what can be effective in persuading people and many of you I think are doing this in in your arguments is to take something that they're committed to as a value um, or that they have like a strong incentive to convey as a value and try to show that basic income is consistent with that So just wanted to sort of think put out there that's kind of one of the ways that I think about persuasion and one of the things that I've seen activist groups use over and over and over again uh, to persuade people of something like you can't be against you know, gay marriage if you think interracial marriages is, is a good idea, things like that. like so taking something that had already been accepted and, and people don't want to be against and framing a new thing like gay marriage when it was a newer thing uh, in in terms of that is sort of a simple example. but uh, but I think implicit in some of the other arguments you guys are talking about is this perhaps the same kind of form. like like do you want uh, like like presumably Carl is assuming most people aren't really into a super hierarchical system where, uh, everybody has to work for rich people. Like that's not, that's not their value that they want to have or convey. I'm, I'm assuming if they're going to be persuaded by Carl's argument. So by pointing out that it kind of has the current economic, economic system has that structure that sort of makes it inconsistent with values people already have. So I, think, I think that can be effective in persuading people. Something that I worry about on the flip side with, with how things are framed morally is that a lot of moral arguments seem to be wrapped up in um, incentives to signal that you're part of one group and not part of another group. In our culture and probably in a lot of other cultures so often this is like democrat or republican or it could be like religious or not or it could be so so i'm concerned like a moral for framing can also backfire in that way if it becomes something that gets attached to kind of one side of a of of an in-group out-group dynamic um and thus thus everybody on the other side even if they already would have agreed with it now has an incentive to be against it so if it were like if it ends up getting attached as like a democratic cause then without really thinking, you know, a lot of people who identify as Republicans are just gonna be against it. So that's sort of a, a concern I have um, with really, I mean, it's really gonna rise probably no matter what you do, but that, that's definitely a concern I have that can happen with, with like political and, and moral framing. Um, and I guess the, the third thing I wanted to say, or the other thing I wanted to say is basic income is interesting because for so many people, it would actually put money in their pockets. So it's one of these kinds of issues where I feel like if, if many people had the opportunity to have a real genuine huge impact on whether it was implemented, like they were suddenly just in charge of implementing or not. I feel like their uh, moral objections might shift rather quickly for a lot of people, as we see for better or for worse with lots of things that are in people's like direct incentive. Um, but unfortunately, or fortunately, like we do, people don't have that kind of influence for the most part. Their like influence is very diffuse. And so instead, you see a lot of people arguing against something that would actually benefit them quite directly. So I just think you see that in, in a lot of different kinds of politics. And this is one example that's kind of stark because so many people would be so much better off with a basic income and yet oppose it um, and oppose it on these kinds of moral grounds. And I think the fact that they can't just push a button and make it happen is probably one of the reasons that you see that uh, kind of opposition.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with the idea that people actually understand or believe that basic income would make them better off or make society better off. I think a lot of people view it as this, this kind of impossible utopian thing that if we tried to implement it, it would wreck the economy and make everyone worse off or something like that. I think that's kind of people's default intuition around it. You can't just give people money. Um, And that's not even a moral objection. Although there are moral um, arguments that are kind of tied to that. Um, But it's kind of just this, this intuition about how the world works. And this, this subverts that, uh, and it feels like it's going to do some damage to society or some damage to the economy or something like that.
2: I think despite that people might be proponents if they could push a button and make it happen, but because they would then kind of be free riding in the opposite direction, right? Like they, like at least if they didn't think the economy would tank right away, uh, they would sort of be saying, well, I'm gonna get this money and maybe maybe it's not so good for like the overall economy or the group, but maybe I, I want it anyway. So it might be like a selfish motive if they don't understand how it would work well. Um, unless, you see what I mean, like it might still be sort of selfishly motivated in a way if they think that it's actually bad for the economy but good for them personally. Uh, because they get this money.
0: Yeah, I, I think we actually did see a lot of that among the Yang supporters who said, oh, he wants to give us free money, let's vote for him. And they kind of like, in the back of their heads, they know it's going to ruin everything, but they support it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're like, oh, secure the bag, let's get our free money, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's not really the the level of discussion of basic income that uh, that is going to, you know, kind of get it, get it the whole way. It certainly got a lot of attention and was helpful in that respect. But you know, people like us are gonna actually have to push it the rest of the way. Uh, Let's go to Kate now.
4: Um, Well, first I want to briefly upvote Bethany's comment about um, the fact that taking a certain side in a normative dispute can be a way to mark and group out group distinctions. Now I actually wrote a chapter in my dissertation about this in the context of disputes about matters of taste, but I think that that's correct. I I won't elaborate farther on that right now though. Um, I do want to come back around to this general question of even if people are objecting on moral grounds, does the response itself need to be framed morally? And I I agree with you, Alex, and others who have said that not necessarily. It it can be, but there are maybe other ways to approach it. Um, As Bethany pointed out in her initial um, remarks. External changes to people's conditions can also impact their moral views, like the basic income itself. But I don't. I think that we have other options. I don't think that we have to go as far as implementing a basic income to generate some cert- certain certain types of maybe contextual shifts or other production of ele- other relevant ideas or information that might influence people's basic values. Um, I don't know how to go about doing this, but I want to raise up a couple of <laughs> points for thought. So, I think that the appropriate response, a way to tackle this objection effectively, might not necessarily be adopting any type of argument from any discipline. It might be something that's totally non academic that tries to trigger people's personal experiences or um, their evaluative thoughts in a certain way. So, for instance, this Objection seems to be rooted a lot in people's own experiences with the working life. Um, I don't know if it's fair, but I've always kind of thought of it as a misery once company viewpoint. If someone has had to work themselves long hours their entire life to make a living, then they want other people to have to endure this also. Um, but people may need to have personal experience to reveal to themselves that it's you know, having a life that revolves so tightly around working for money for its own sake isn't necessarily the best way a human life should be. Now, uh, the, the Welsh sociologist David Frayne has written a nice book called The Refusal of Work about people who reject a life in traditional employment. And in this book, he documents that most of his subjects have had an experience that he refers to as the break point or the breaking point, the point of epiphany in their own working lives. When they realize that the nine-to-five life you're know, working merely for the sake of work is actually a rather spiritually bankrupt way of life and I've been in communities with people who reject traditional employment structures and this is a common theme though it's not one that I've actually experienced myself I feel like I my formative experiences came very early in life when I was questioning the value of education and I never really opted in, or I was never really inculturated into the dominant mindset. So, in my past life, as someone who was trying to advocate for different structures of employment, um, including things like downshifting and uh, taking mid career retirement, stuff like that, I always confronted this obstacle that I really have no idea how to persuade people because I don't know how to cause people who haven't had any type of personal experience that causes them to doubt the morality or the primacy of the work should hold in one's life to give up that view. But the general idea here is I think that it is worthwhile to consider other ways than merely rational argument to try to nudge people to consider the value in other ways of living. And this could be through personal narrative although I'm not really sure personal narrative if personal narrative is very effective to people who can't antecedently relate to the speaker. I mean maybe fictionalized accounts would do better. Um, maybe it's a way to incorporate artwork and to getting people to reflect on things like the importance of role of paid work in particular. Or maybe a better, more effective approach is to come from, from another direction and simply try to build empathy for poor people, especially poor people who are out of work. Again, you know, through personal narratives, um, storytelling, or fictionalized accounts. So I'm a philosopher, so I have my, my biases towards rational argument, but you know, I will readily admit that people have other faculties besides reason and rationality. Right? We have empathy, compassion, and imagination, hope, love, all these other um, sentimental capacities. And I actually don't think that it's wrong to appeal to these irrational faculties when trying to influence people's basic values. Our values come from somewhere. I'm a philosopher, but I sure as hell didn't come to my basic values by sitting in an armchair reasoning about fundamental morality, nor did I come to them through empirical experiments or anything like that. I have values that I form through life experience and introspection to some degree. Yeah. um... we should Consider approaches that lie outside of rational argument when we think about how to reply in some sense to these moral objections.
0: Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's the question of how do we sell uh, basic income to people? How do we convince them that, you know, they should be in support of this? And then there's the question of how do we think about it ourselves? And are those two things the same thing? Uh, Let's go to Derek.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just want to really agree with what Kate said, because that's really how um, I I look at that. There's the two sides of it. There's, um, we can call it the rational arguments, but also just like the 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 um, harder descriptive understanding of of, uh, of uh, what basic income is, how it works, and you know if we're advocates of that, obviously you know we should hope we all do our due diligence and like really um, you know get clear there. But then another thing to get clear about is sort of what is the who is the person sitting in front of you that you're talking to? Where are they coming from? Uh, how do they feel? And um, I, I think that's crucially important. And um, so you know for me, that's sort of how I, I, um, I found that to be the first step in addressing some of these problems that Michael was talking about when you encounter someone um, who is, is really, really, um, you know, not they're, they're, a lot of times when you encounter someone who's just stressing, look, it's morally wrong to do X, in this case, to, to give people a benefit that they didn't work to, right? It's, it's morally wrong to do this, um, and they're doubling down on that. I mean, I think, like Alex pointed it out, it, it can be useful to ask why. I mean, few people will just embrace the tautology and just there's there's nothing <laughs> there's no reason for it. I have no nothing more to say. It's just that. Um, but even in those situations, like what I've found um, is that most of the time when someone is having is strongly attached to a moral objection, it's often, at least in my experience, the the flip side of a positive moral statement, right? I mean, they, they believe that it's wrong to give people benefit for not working, I think, maybe because there's someone who are, who's passionately convinced in the moral righteousness of work, or working hard, or seeking to do a good job, or or, or seeking to get the best out of oneself. And, and so um, what I usually do is just um, start there, and I just start affirming That moral conviction—the sort of the opposite of what they're what they're saying at the Um, moment—because there's usually common ground uh, to build on there, and that 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 for me is sort of where where empathy falls into it. It's looking for uh, what we share first, as opposed to looking at you know where we disagree first.
0: Yeah, is there a way to agree with the moral position of the people who have moral objections in a way that makes their moral position no longer an objection to basic income? I think that's, that's, a really, um, that's a really powerful approach uh, that I tend to try to employ as well. Uh, let's go to Carl. I, uh,
1: I, I do not believe there is a way to, uh, to uh, take people's uh, moral position and make it not an objection. Because I think maybe if you deal with what they're saying on the surface, it might. But if you look at what their position really is, which I think Derek said correctly, the moral righteousness of work. Um, but if they say something else, like, well, um, well, the society would collapse, or you know, we need people to work, or something like that, you can you can turn the subject to economics, and you can talk about the economics of that for all you want. And it's hard. You can tell people, well, what if we don't need everybody to, need to work? Well, then you have to spend a lot of time convincing them of this, showing lots and lots of controversial evidence. And they're okay. You've you've changed the subject. You're now in the economics of it. But even if you tell them, uh, you tell them somebody else to work, uh, you haven't really done anything to convince them that the moral righteousness of work is not what there is. Just we need less work. Okay. Well then, well then, uh, well then we should ration work. Then we should shorten everybody's work week, but then have everybody work. Uh, And I think part of the belief, if you ask people why there's a moral righteousness of work, uh, it is because a belief in parasitism, which they're not likely to use that word, but this idea that um, people who don't work are freeloading off people who do, because almost everything we consume, including, uh, well, almost everything we consume, except for something like sunshine, um, it requires labor as one ingredient. natural resources of the other, but it also requires labor. And you're saying when this guy doesn't work, this guy and this guy does, you're saying this person is partly living off that person's effort. And people are going to say that's wrong unless you address that. And you need this, you need a moral idea of you need a moral idea to to address that. And anything else really is just sidestepping the issue and so i and also i find when you question people are so not used to questioning the moral righteousness of work that if you challenge them on that you challenge them on something they're not used to and you get people thinking in different ways um that's uh one thing i'm really happy with the way the basic income rhetoric is going is that they're challenging these basic ideas that the, uh, the left has been afraid to challenge people on They've been trying to say, oh yeah, we only help the truly needy, but they want to show you that pretty much everybody is truly needy. Um, and, and really the belief is that if you can't make it in capitalism, you can't possibly be truly needy. Um, and, or you're just a bad person. That, that this, this trying to work within this moral framework, we've been trying that you know, since Bismarck um, and it has not worked. Um, and that we really need to, we need to challenge this frame and, and you'll, you'll knock people off of their comfort zone when you do that.
0: I think that's right. And I'm all for challenging the moral righteousness of work and challenging existing moral frameworks. So I guess the question we can ask is the, is the, is the most efficient or the most effective way to do that to provide a replacement moral framework, or, or is there a way to challenge that, um effectively without bringing up your kind of your kind of another moral position or something like that let's go to bethany
2: yeah i was going to second this idea of thinking about what's behind somebody's objection and trying to address that and to this specific question of the moral virtue of work i think another approach um i think this is different from what carl said would be to 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 agree with the fact that it can be valuable to put effort into things that you think are going to offer benefit to other people Um, And that that's but to point out that that's not done exclusively through paid labor, which I think might be part of what Mike Michael's pointing to when he says people are really talking about selling your labor for money as opposed to the more general concept of work. Um, And it might still be valuable to encourage in your children and in yourself, like putting effort into things that are a value to yourself and to other people, which is a broader sense of work. And so, you know, you can, I think I could agree with somebody on that and that might be for some individuals, the heart of what they're really holding on to and what they really value um, and what they don't want to lose in society, Um, whereas that being paid isn't necessarily, might not be essential to their position for, I think, the majority of people, and I think that's why people often bring up the fact that there's sort of unpaid things that people consider valuable, like caring for elders, caring for children, doing community service, Um, you know, I think that's pointing to this idea that people value something a little bit broader than paid labor, and so I think that might be, in that particular objection, that might be another another angle that could work for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, because there's a lot of valuable work that, that people do that's not paid. Uh, and when people say you have to earn a living, uh, they're not talking about that kind of work. So it's interesting to, to, to bring up that contrast. Uh, it's also interesting uh, that people tend to equate the need for labor with a need for everybody to be selling labor. Uh, those two things are not the same thing. Society needs some labor, but it doesn't necessarily need everyone to be working. Uh, let's go to Michael.
5: I have two points. Uh, one is uh, on what Bethany just said, and then uh, one about something else. Anthony Atkinson, um, who I believe died a few years ago, an economist, he was an advocate of something called a participation income, which was somewhere between what we have now and a you know, full unconditional UBI. Um, and so uh, a lot of people who, who sort of realize that work is broader than selling one's labor in return for money, um, they, they either themselves support a UBI or argue that that's probably the best we can do in a society where people value work and not just labor supply, but they value work. Um, the best we can do maybe is like um, institute uh, some kind of participation income where people are, are getting money in return for some kind of useful community service, right? And then we gotta figure out what that is and, and what qualifies is that and things like that. So that, so, so that kind of argument um, might get you to a particip- participation income, but maybe not a UBI. I mean, it depends, I don't know, right? So that's, that's one thought I had as Bethany was speaking. Um, but the other point I was going to make before that was um, uh, there, there's a book I read a long time ago in grad school um, called, um, the, I think it was called The Color of Welfare, um, written by a sociologist, Jill. I'm going to mispronounce her last name, Quadagno, Quadagno, something like that. Um, and she writes about um, why the U.S. ended up with a welfare state that was so much less—I'll say so much less expansive than like uh, the European countries. Um, and she points out that um, that a big part of that is is the history of this country around race and racism. Um, um, I bring that up because. Um, I think part of, of the moral objection to to basic income that we've been talking about, um, at least on the part of many white folks um, is a concern. It's it's a racialized objection, right? It's, it's a concern that um, that some of the people who might try to be parasites, right, are the black and brown folks. And so this could also explain why as Bethany said, they, they might be opposing basic income, even though it might benefit them because uh, they might be okay with it if they got it, but not those parasite people. Um, so so I, I, I just, it's a thought I had when you were talking about this. It didn't, hadn't, hadn't come up yet, but, um, but Daniel, I think that's how you pronounce her name, she argues that, um, that our welfare state is so so stingy, right? Because of the way race has been used um, and racism has been used to keep um, low income poor whites from embracing a more expansive system out of concerns of those brown and black people, lazy brown and black people benefiting. Um, so part of the objection might be racialized, which, which complicates things quite a bit, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. We've got all these different countries with different cultures who have established different norms about what kind of social support is okay. They have different moral frameworks, and we can ask why is that? And there might be a lot of reasons why it's different, but a big part of it can be our history of racism and our present, you know, uh, kind of continuation in that in that path. And then how do we overcome that? How do we um, how do we shift people's uh, moral frameworks, or shift shift people's um, in groups even to include everybody, and and you know maybe not exclude uh, black and brown people, for example, or immigrants, or uh, you know there's there's all kinds of divides that we have where if we all thought of ourselves as together as as one people, we might be treating each other differently, and we might be designing systems that treat people differently as well. Let's go to Bethany.
2: Uh, yeah, this is I think somewhat related. Um, I think one of the core moral objections that people have or at the core of, of another set of moral objections is that this free ridership idea involves some people being worse off as a result of other people being better off because they're getting the basic income and not having to work for it. And other people are presumably worse off because of that. I think that's kind of an assumption that a lot of people have, even if they wouldn't articulate it in that way. Um, even if they would just say like, if you don't work, you don't eat. I think that's behind a lot of it. So to the extent that one thinks that isn't true, I suppose this comebacks, this could come back to Alex's perspective. Like, Could you argue the economics or something else in such a way that you truly convinced people that that wouldn't necessarily be the case? Um, maybe it is the case to some extent. And then that requires a different kind of argument, one that that appeals to people to actually care about, about everybody doing well. Um, but to the extent that it's not the case, you might be able to fall back on on an economic argument. And what I'm thinking of in particular is is Alex, your argument from before that maybe we're actually expending resources to keep people employed. And so it's not exactly like uh, somebody's becoming better off because of that, right? It's not exactly like you're getting more because we're expending resources to make a job for somebody else. Um, So that that kind of thing might speak to, to certain people's moral objections, even if their moral objections aren't framed in such a way that you would initially that that would help because I do think there's this idea of like some people benefiting at other people's expense uh, when you have a basic income
0: yeah i mean there's this intuition that we want everybody to contribute but what does it mean to contribute when the ways in which people contribute are manufactured to give them an opportunity to contribute you know are we are we using economic policy to create jobs so that people can contribute and then you know kind of breaking it down in that way we can question some of these kinds of things um i liked that michael brought up just now the idea of a participation income Uh, and then you know when you have a participation income now you have to have someone passing judgment over what are useful ways for people to spend their time. And that's very different from the assumption that people spend their time in useful ways by default, and you only need to pay them to get them to do something different. If they, if, if there was something useful that wasn't being done that needed to be done, now you can pay people, right? Um, and and that's kind of more the basic income perspective is that, well, people need money so they can buy things. And you know we assume that they spend their time however they spend their time, and that's valuable to them, if not to anyone else. And then we see how it shakes out. And then if we need them to do something else, we can pay them to do that, right? That's a very different perspective from saying, okay, um, we're going to look at the world and decide uh, what, what, what uh, kinds of activities are useful and what kinds aren't and which ones deserve, deserve payment and that kind of thing. I mean, it's similar in that you're only paying people for the work when they're actually employed when they actually have a job and the basic income is not compensation for anything it's not uh you're not paying people for anything they did you're paying them to give them money right uh so in that sense it is the same thing and you're just leaving uh deciding what what's useful work and what's not useful work up to the market or up to whoever wants to pay to 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 get something done uh let's go to kate
4: okay so i originally raised my hand i guess to comment on this idea of can we object to, or can we accept the moral righteousness of work and still be basic income proponents? And I agree with Bethany's comment a couple of turns back. That was actually what I was going to say was to point out that yes we can because we can say that work is morally righteous but not necessarily specifically um, paid work. I only wanted to add briefly to that, that isn't it kind of strange if we suppose that to do what's morally righteous, people need to be paid to do what's morally righteous. Is that really moral righteousness? Or even in the case for participation income, do we need a government to tell us that we need to do what's morally righteous in order to get our basic income or stipend? Is that morally righteous or is that morally righteous if you have the freedom not to work, but still choose to do so?
0: There's kind of this double layer of incentives, right? We glorify work, we glorify labor, but this is stuff that's, that people are being paid to do. Why are they heroes? They're being paid to do it, right? Um, if they were doing it out of the kindness of their heart and it was something you know, miraculous that helped a lot of people, we can be like, oh yeah, that's great.
4: It seems like a tension in the way a lot of people think of moral behavior
0: yeah i i think that's right and we have this yeah we have these kinds of two sets of incentives one is the social incentive you want to encourage people to work and shame them for not working not contributing and that of course makes sense in a, in a small-scale society or even a small-scale context like a family or something like that um, but the reason we have a market the reason why we have monetary incentives is because we have Tons of people in the world, right? And they don't know each other. And we need to provide an incentive for for people to do work um, who, you know, they have no reason to, you know, do something nice for someone they don't know necessarily, or something like that. You know, we've the reason we have uh, we have market incentives to kind of solve this problem, uh, and then they kind of become redundant with the social incentives, at least at a very very large scale. Uh, Derek likes to say sometimes that that money is for people you don't know, and I think you know the social shaming and you know, the moral righteousness around work, a lot of that is for people you do know, you know, like you're not pulling your own weight in the family or something like that. Uh, let's go to Carl.
1: Okay, wow, well, I've had, i taking a note on just about everything everybody said. To follow on what somebody was saying about the work ethic is that we do not now, nor have we ever had a work ethic in the United States. What we have is a money-making ethic. Um, you are morally righteous if you're making money. Um, and it doesn't even matter if you're working for it. If you've got investments that are making money, you're the morally righteous person. And it doesn't matter how valuable your labor is. You're, you're satisfying it if you're selling utter crap uh, that that that, that uh, gets people addicted to something and makes their lives worth off. And if you're doing something that's really good, uh, like taking care of sick children, if you're not getting paid for it, you're that's the kind of ethic we have. We need to challenge that. We need to challenge the money-making ethic partly by exposing it for what it is. It is not uh, really the moral righteousness of work, but it is a money-making ethic. And wh- I think one of the things we need to do, when the, one of the reasons I think that the moral argument is so powerful is we don't have to convince everybody. Nothing is ever passed unanimously. Some people aren't going to climb aboard and trying to frame arguments as a grand compromise is going to get everybody aboard, water sinks down, and actually leads you to deviate from what you really want. What basic income, there might have been an opportunity back in the 60s for a grand compromise on basic income. That is long gone. The right is convinced that we've got to cut and cut and cut everything to help people and vilifying them as a political winner and a moral winner for some and a moral winner for others. What we have to do is capture the left and capture the center and then capture the center left and capture the center. This is something that is coming from the left. And we can do that by challenging this idea that we're using poverty as a threat. Because when you frame that argument in that way and and say, look, you're enforcing a money making ethic with a threat of poverty you can capture the left. People, people who are left to center don't want to be ashamed with this idea that, wow, yeah, I guess in some sense, I am. By my trying to compromise with these people, I am, in fact, threatening the most vulnerable people, society with homelessness to get them to perform services of people who control resources. And I don't think just saying rents saying that, well, some of our income comes from ownership of natural resources, we can distribute those, whether you work or not, because they can only say, well, everything needs two ingredients, not just resources, but also labor, you can distribute those works only between people who labor. And it's not enough to say, well, a lot of people who don't make money also do something valuable, because then they'll say, okay, uh, very often people say, okay, yeah, we should, we should include... We should include, um, people taking care of sick relatives. We should include them. Um, and, uh, and, uh, we should, you choose widows and orphans. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll expand the people, but they'll always want to leave somebody out if they don't challenge the moral righteousness of work. Um, and, uh, And so we need to challenge that. And we can challenge that partly because uh, UBI might not be conditional on work, but it is the farthest thing in the world for something for nothing. Because your access to clean water, hunting, fishing, gathering, farming, uh, starting your own business, starting your own cooperative, your access to the resources you need to do any of those things has been taken from you by the government and given to wealthy people who sell it to you, uh, and, and nobody asked you, you didn't get to vote on this, it was all taken before you were born, the access to the resources you could use to work for yourself and create a, an artificial situation where you'll be threatened with eating out of people's dumpsters, that'll be other people's garbage, that'll be your only option, if you don't work for the people that we privilege by calling in the owners of these resources. This is the argument that I think will capture the left for basic income and from there the center.
0: That's an interesting point and I've heard you make that point before about the enclosure of the commons and how people can't work for themselves and survive on their own anymore. They're kind of dependent on the people who who own all the means of production and all the land and all of that stuff. Uh, And I I think that is an important point and a question we can ask, if the commons hadn't been enclosed, would basic income be a bad idea? And we can ask this question in two ways. Uh, what if the commons were still open? Would basic income be a bad idea? And what if they had never been open? Does basic income then become irrelevant? And I think no. And I think, you know, basic income is always gonna solve the same problem regardless of what happened historically, right? It, it gives people money so, so they can buy stuff. On one level, you can create this this moral argument about um, why people deserve basic income because of what what has been taken away from them in the past, that kind of thing, that's fine. But on another level, basic income really is definitely something for nothing. Uh, And and I think it makes sense to justify it on those terms. Why do we wanna give people money for not contributing anything or for, for really no reason whatsoever other than that they're people? And I think the answer is that we care about people and we want people to be able to buy things Things and the things they need and the things they want and, and get the most benefit out of the economy, that kind of stuff. I liked what you said, Carl, about the money-making ethic. Why do we have a money-making ethic? And I think it seems like a puzzle, right? Like Kate was saying, why do we celebrate people who are doing something That they're being paid to do? Uh, And I think the answer is that you have this kind of interface between the small scale context and the large scale context. So, in the large scale context, the money provides an incentive for you to do whatever work. And in the small scale context, in your family, the small scale contribution that you make is you're bringing in money to the family. So, maybe that can kind of provide some insight into why we have this puzzling phenomenon of celebrating people who are being paid to do stuff because they're uh, contributing. To their, their pulling pulling their own weight in the smaller scale context as well. So that's it's kind of a, a mixture of those two things. Uh let's go to Derek.
3: Well, yeah, I mean when Kate said that, I wanted to echo that too, because I think that's a really important point. And that does kind of maybe reframe the, the debate, the discussion about like what role does morality uh play into these debates on basic income? Because you know, it's not a question of like, oh, do we do we just you know, do we not need morality at all? Or should we ignore it? Like, well, no. It occupies this really important space. Like, there's a lot of us. Um, you know, it's, it's crucially important, especially at that small scale, and even sort of a what we might call a medium scale. Most of our interactions with people have some moral character. the the, the, the funny thing is that, yeah. I mean, as Kate suggests, once you get to this large economic scale, people are getting paid to do stuff, and <laughs> some of them might believe it's morally right to do a certain job. Other people are just there for the money. Uh, and presumably, if you stop paying any of them, then they wouldn't do the job anymore, they'd probably leave and do something else. So there is there is that um, it, it takes on this, this separate character there. And that's why I think it's, it's helpful to to separate that precisely, um, you know, one way that I that I I guess one way to say this is that, you know, rather than saying, you know, oh, I'm not in favor of moral arguments for basic income, I want to take an economics approach, how I would put it personally is like, I, I, I want um, I want a society where there's more of a proper space available for for the moral debates and discussions that we need to have um, for actually figuring out what do we want culturally, socially in our lives and maybe in some wider sense like what do we want there and and separating that from this this very basic question about you know money and how and how how we can um, help everybody be more prosperous so, Um, yeah, that's, that's the sort of stuff that's running through my head. I guess I also wanted to mention, respond to some of the stuff Carl said about um, how, you know, um, we don't have to convince everyone. And I, I think that's true. Like, I think the reality is there are probably a few people that if you were able to convince them, they're in a particular position in society where it would help more than others. At the same time, I'm not particularly picky. And I think if I run into people, you know, I tend not to think of it. I tend not to think of framing basic income in terms of like what will appeal to the left or the center or the right, because the reality is I encounter uh, people of all different persuasions. And um, I've enjoyed learning arguments uh, that, that seem to work against most of them.
0: I think that's right. We don't have to convince everyone, but we do want to be able to convince as many of the people we run into as, as possible. Uh, So let's go to questions from some of the non-featured guests. We'll start with Eddie. Go ahead, Eddie.
7: We talked earlier about the, you know, from the very beginning, the the moral framing thing. And I want to say that an agreement on the structure uh, of reality is kind of preliminary to moral discussion. So if, you know, if I think um, A is going to happen and you think B is going to happen, um, you know, we have to figure out which one is actually going to happen before we can even begin to talk about whether that's good or not, um, and in what way. Um, so we, the you know, the argument from the right against UBI is often that it would cause inflation and it would not leave people better off. And I don't think anybody believes that if UBI caused inflation, that 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 would be a good thing to have UBI and have it cause inflation. Um, the, the economics that's missing here is that um, the concentration of capital uh, in society creates a mismatch between the productive capacity that we have and the consumptive ability that we have um, and that both allows for and also requires a, a universal basic income. Um, so if you look at Warren Buffett um, you know he has eighty billion dollars worth of assets uh even if he gets a ten percent return a year that's eight billion dollars a year that's twenty four million dollars per day um, the guy you know eats burgers and drives the drives a pickup truck he can't he can't eat a million burgers so he ends up saving all of his income and and investing more so there's there's this very common worry that ubi will cause people to not work and we won't have enough labor being sold and that that will be a a problem Um, and we really don't have that problem Um, I'd say we actually have 180 degrees the exact opposite problem so basic economics tells us that when something gets too scarce it gets expensive Um, you know if it's abundant it becomes cheap Uh, And what that tells us is that labor in our society is not too scarce and too expensive, it's too abundant and too cheap. Society does does not have a problem with not being able to access labor. Um, You know, if society needs to access labor, it can just buy it. Uh, We have a mechanism for that. It really has the opposite problem where it has overabundant labor and not enough quality valuable work for those people to do and that's why cheap labor is, is, is too cheap. Um, that's because of the cum- accumulation of capital um, which by generating productivity growth you know allows for, for more production which is good so that you know all the capital has allowed production to go up. That's a good thing so I, I think there's,
0: um, there's a lot here, uh, and you're speaking to a lot of the economic objections to basic income, and I think this is an important point because you know, we're here talking about moral framing and the people who have moral objections to basic income, but there are a lot of objections to basic income that aren't don't even start as kind of a moral objection. They start as you know, uh, well, if you give everyone money, it's going to cause inflation. If you give everyone money, it's going to they're going to stop working. Uh, and you know, there might be some moral intuitions kind of intertwined with those economic intuitions. But that's not the whole story and it's i think you know if we were in a world where everyone kind of understood the economics of basic income uh, and it still wasn't happening and people have you know kind of all these moral objections then you know it feels like that would be one thing but that's not quite the world we're, we're living in yet i don't know that the primary objections to basic income especially among economists and other experts i don't know that those objections are primarily moral objections and if we want you know the experts that everyone trusts the economists that you know politicians listen to and stuff like that to support basic income then i don't know that the moral arguments are going to be the ones that are really going to land uh with people like that and we do need to get those people on board we also need to get the general public on board yeah go ahead eddie you can finish the the point that you were making
7: Uh, so the final point was that the accumulation of capital um, you know, by generating productivity growth, uh, it allows more production, which is good, but paradoxically, it reduces the need for labor, um, which cuts the consumer worker off at the knees um, by limiting their access to to income. So you end up with um, lots of capacity to produce, um, but people don't have money um, to buy the production because the labor is not as needed in the economy. And that's... Um, and that's where the UBI comes in.
0: I think this is kind of the fundamental problem that basic income solves. The economy isn't gonna produce what people don't have the money to buy. And if people don't have money, then they're not gonna be able to get the, the maximum benefit out of what the economy can provide them. Uh, so we can ask what kinds of things we're doing now in our economy uh, instead of basic income. And what are the consequences of that? How are we getting people their money? And, you know, a big part of the answer to that is the labor market. And a big part of the answer to that is, um, you know, stimulating the financial sector, stimulating Wall Street to encourage more borrowing so businesses can get money cheap and hire more people and, and create more jobs and stuff like that. Um, And we can ask whether that's really the most efficient, most effective way to get people their money. Um, So a question we can ask is, why do people believe that basic income is a moral issue? And that can be uh, a question we can ask of basic income supporters or basic income opponents. And my sense is that the fact that people think moral framing is so appropriate in the discussion of basic income suggests to me that the function of basic income isn't as clear to them as it could be. If the function of basic income were as obvious as say the function of oh, you know, like roads and bridges or something like that, um, I don't think anyone acting in good faith would be making moral arguments in support of or against basic income. It's a very simple thing that solves a very simple problem in our society. Uh, and it feels like we're making it, uh, at least to me, it feels like we're making it more complex uh, by getting into the moral stuff. Let's go to Carl.
1: Uh, a couple of things. Let me ask, why do we have a money-making ethic? And I think it's that, quite clear why we have a money-making ethic. Because the, 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 the government and the private interests who got rid of the commons and put 99% of the people in, in the position where they have to sell their labor, to Live have created a situation where labor is synonymous, where, where selling your labor is synonymous with making a living. Work is about making a living. Um, they have made it synonymous and made us all forget that there was for most of human history, people didn't need a boss to work and make their own living. We've simply forgotten that as it is, it is lost in, in our collective memory. Um, and I think this brings up why um, your, your question, you know, uh, I, I think, is irrelevant. What if there still was a commons? The, the, the point of that is, is that question is irrelevant because we're so far from the commons. We're so far from having a commons because we have so many people on Earth. Um, there are something like 20 million people in the New York area, uh, 2 million of those in Manhattan alone. I did some Googling while we were talking here. Central Park has a real estate value of thirty-nine trillion dollars, and it is eight hundred and forty acres. Well, if you want to give everybody a mule, uh, I'll spring for the mule. So just that's that's uh, that that will support you. That will support forty. That's twenty-one people. Forty acres in Central Park. Twenty-one people can live on Central Park. And they won't have clean water um, just on their own efforts. Um, that's 21 people in a met, uh, at a cost at a cost of 39 trillion dollars. It is unrealistic to give every person in the New York area enough resources that they can survive on. But I think one thing we do know: if you did give it, if if you if you made it available. Uh, if you made it available, if you made some limited number available, someone would take it. A lot of homeless people would be homesteading if they could. So it's not that people do not want the land. It is that people are denied access to the land. Homeless people don't make their own shelters, not because they're too lazy, but because we knock them down when they make them. You give them a place where they can make shelters, all the homeless people will have shanties. You give them good trees, they'll have a cabins. Uh so, I think that's really a really irrelevant question. What if the commons was still open? And I think ignoring the, ignoring the moral question is forgetting that most people really believe their own bullshit. Is that you can say, well, these, these moral arguments really, really don't hold water. It doesn't hurt, that doesn't change the fact that people still believe them and they need to be challenged.
0: Well, I certainly believe my own bullshit. So that's (laughs) certainly true. That's a good response. Thanks, Carl. I probably have more to say to that and we can talk about it uh, another time, but I want to get to more questions from the non-featured guests. Let's go to Conrad.
8: Hey, um, something you said, uh, Alex reminded me, you said something about, uh, infrastructure, like roads and bridges, like there's implying that there's not like a moral argument behind those. Um, but I li- I grew up in Colorado Springs and we were the joke of the nation for having that moral argument, uh, whether or not it was worthwhile paying taxes, uh, for such things as filling in potholes and turning on lights in, in, city parks. So I think if we look at it at a, at a more granular level, everything is moral at its root. And the question is how deep into the assumptions do you go to find where the morals are? Uh, like economics is, is a is a moral practice at, at, at heart. And the moral question when it comes to economics and national policy is you know, the righteousness of efficiency. Uh, how important is it to be efficient? And then what does it even mean to be efficient? Like a lot of people, I think efficiency has a, a stigma to it. A lot of people think of efficiency as a cold and calculated thing because efficiency, what it really means is getting getting to something quickly and without uh, unnecessary and undue pain. And what the, if the thing you're getting to is cold and calculated, which is the targets we have in our society, then efficiency is cold and calculated. So I, what I find is a lot of your arguments are about like the effectiveness and efficiency within a system of getting money to people as, a, as if it's like, like a simple mathematical thing. But the assumption there is that is a moral assumption that, that that's a good thing to do that that we want to get money to people in in, a, in an efficient and effective way and that itself is a moral question. Um, so if you so you're you're making a moral decision by presuming that we believe that that uh, that people shouldn't be starving on the street that uh, money should be equitably. Uh, accessible to people to the point where people have access to the resources they need um, and you're making it for a variety of reasons that are your own but they are they are moral choices um, so one of the things I really like about the con the concept of like uh, uh, of human capitalism or I don't know what the, the right term for it is but something that focuses on the human and the human experience is that it takes all the assumptions and the presuppositions, uh, at the beginning as our our end goal is to improve the human experience uh, for and and for as, for as many human beings as possible and then if we put our efficient engineering brains towards that, um, it doesn't mean we haven't we suddenly haven't made a moral choice because we're thinking logically and rationally and mathematically we started from a moral choice and we just proceeded step by step to get there.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And that's a point, actually, that that Carl brought up the last time he was here that, you know, uh, or even maybe Michael brought it up too that maybe I'm making a moral judgment by deciding that we want people to be prosperous by deciding that our goal is that is that people should have money. Uh, And there's not really anything I can say to that. I can't say that that's not true. The question is whether it's constructive to look at it that way. And I had a email thread with, with Michael, as we were kind of getting ready for this like a month ago, um, as we were planning this. And the example I brought up was that you can drive a car and it's got to have air in its tires in order to function properly. You know, the car is a machine that serves a certain purpose and it works in a certain way. Uh, and I would say the same thing is true of the economy. And if I go around telling people that you need air in your car's tires in order for it to work am i taking a moral position on the role of cars in our society well maybe you could make that argument and i wouldn't be able to object to it but It feels like it's beside the point, right? It's not relevant to the point I'm trying to make. There's this machine that requires certain things in order to function. And I think that's true of the economy as well. People need money in order to buy things. And it's not just a moral judgment on my part either. We can go out and observe the economy and we can see that when we don't have a basic income, we try to replace it with other alternatives to basic income. We try to push money to people through jobs. We distort the labor market away from efficiency. We distort the financial sector away from efficiency. We get these booms and busts all because we're trying to prop up consumer spending using monetary policy, that kind of stuff. So you can say that wanting to give people money, wanting people to be prosperous is a moral position. I'm just not sure how useful it is. Let's go to our last audience comment. Let's go to Richard.
6: Well, another thing besides roads and bridges is public education. And those in power determine what people are exposed to and what they, what sort of things they're taught for the economy of tomorrow? But we don't know what's going to be necessary for that, and yet we're still teaching the things from 30 or so years ago. And what's more is we don't teach people things like the arts or music and whatnot because that's deter, that's well not determined to be necessary. But if we teach them about humanities and things like that, they're able to, they're like. With jobs, they're thinking about, oh, we need to have people who understand how people think and whatnot and our critical thinking. But instead, we're teaching towards uh, a certain goal of like we want them to have be prepared for a job, but they're not prepared for what sort of things they could do.
0: I think that's true. And this is this is the kind of stuff I would bring up in kind of like the non-moral domain, which is that there are a lot of inefficiencies that are introduced by expecting people to get money through the labor market. So I think there have been a lot of comments that have been brought up in the past few minutes that people wanna comment on based on the number of hands that are raised. So let's go around and get final thoughts from our featured guests. We'll do the same order we did at the beginning. So it'll go Carl, Bethany, and then Derek.
1: Yeah, I, I agree strongly with Derek that, that economics is a moral practice and a lot of economists are extremely good at distracting from the large I think that was Conrad. Of, well, who did I say? You said Derek. Oh, I said Derek. Yeah, I meant Conrad. I, I mix words up a lot. That's the thing I do. So uh, it is a moral practice and very often it distracts from the, uh, what's, what's, actually, what's actually going on. Uh, it distracts from those moral assumptions. We do, uh, we uh, you, you you have these supposedly non-moral talks, but you're actually framing it in a very distinct moral way that leaves some ideas out and makes others in. And economists are very good at doing this without even being aware that they're doing it. Uh, and it is not as simple as do we like prosperity better than unprosperity? Is how do we share it? If we only need so many jobs. We only need so much work done. Well, should we have uh, that? Should we have that shared between those who work? Uh, uh, should we have that work shared between those who are willing to? Or we should share that. Then, then I got to work. Uh, 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 I'm producing stuff, and this guy who's not producing stuff gets some of it. No, let's just share that out between those of us who work. We've got a lot of moral things to challenge. What kind of position are you putting in, them in? Um, what kind of advantage then are you giving upper classes? A lot of those things are unspoken when you let people just think about this, uh, when you let people say, oh, well, uh, we've got to conform with the work ethic. Everybody's got to work. It's the question is there and, uh, you ignore that question. It's just going to raise its head up again.
0: Okay. Uh, I think those are some good final thoughts. Let's go to Bethany, Derek, and then Kate.
2: Yeah. So in response to Conrad's question, I just wanted to say that it seems, Alex, like one of the questions um, you're posing is, do you, we already have buy-in to whatever the moral level is, whatever the moral premise is, like some kind of prosperity or like a well-working economy? Is that something that you might frame as moral, but that you think people already are on the same page about? And so really, it's just a question of articulating that to reach that shared goal, you need a basic income. Um, or I think other people disagree with that and say, no, actually, even like the basic premise uh, of what we're shooting for uh, the, what the goal should be is something that's still controversial and you actually have to get buy-in for it first. So I'm just kind of articulating what I'm hearing. The um, other thing I would just emphasize again because I think it's really important is in terms of this value of work and people contributing and people not free riding, it's usually been an ideology, and I, I think I did say this before, that has been really important for people's own personal success if they have been lucky enough to have a job and to like have some success or even in their relationships as you pointed out. Um, but certainly in the workplace, um, to motivate yourself and to, and to convey the right thing to your boss and to your colleagues, you need, you know, it really helps to have this ideology that you're not going to free ride and that you really think working is important and working for your money is important. And so I think basic income can be coming up against an ideology that people have had a very like, lifelong incentive to, to hold, and that can be challenging. And I think people um, today have had creative ways to kind of come at that, and, and, but I do, th- I do see why those are, are needed.
0: Okay, thanks, Bethany. We will go to Derek, and then Kate, and then Michael.
3: Yeah. So I n- I noticed that you know Alex on this topic he likes to deflect from morality to economics, and you know I think maybe he's doing that because he feels that the economics of basic income is missing some important features or it's underrepresented in, in, in the discussion, and he wants to draw attention to it. Uh, you know personally, I look at it a little a little differently. Um, I started out getting uh, more interested in a moral philosophy than I was in in basic income. It took me a while to discover basic income. And having sort of looked at both things, I would now say uh, with some confidence that I think there are some moral arguments that are more compatible, work more smoothly with basic income than others. And so in many ways, it's really a question of if you're going to make a moral argument um, for basic income or against uh, something else or against some argument against it, which one are you choosing and is it the best one uh, that's available um i think that during this discussion we sort of examined um you know problems with the the ethical arguments in in favor of work or in favor of making money right we you know america has we from some point of view america is sort of obsessed with work and we have a protestant work ethic and it's a problem that's holding us back from another point of view maybe we're obsessed with profit obsessed with making money and this is a huge problem well, uh, you know, certainly you can take anything too far, but I would like to flip this around and ask, you know, in a world with basic income, why would we have a work ethic or why would we have a money-making ethic? Um, and the, the answer to those questions is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, in a world of basic income, if someone wants to work and make money um, and make notably profit by collecting basic income, they're, they're giving goods uh, to people in exchange for, you know, what are essentially pieces of paper, you know, they're IOUs for goods in the future, but in the meantime, they're working hard and they're deciding to, to actually help strangers, people that, you know, not their immediate family, but just some stranger who's going to walk into a store, right? So in that society where you actually you have a basic income, so the basic income we have is dependent upon other people doing these other things. So I would suggest, you know, maybe, um, maybe a work ethic and a money-making ethic are useful in that world. Maybe they're actually really important um, and it certainly is nothing I would go out of my way to argue people out of uh, in a world where it was actually helping people, helping maintain the basic income that we have and maybe even increasing it. So, you know, from, from, from that perspective, it's like you just, you know, if we were gonna make moral arguments uh, against these other positions, it's like I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick against money-making because that's um, notably like a crucial part of basic income. It has to be able to be, to be made by someone else in order for the, the UBI to be useful. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess that's really my position here. I'm not trying to say morality isn't relevant, but I, I, would, I would like us to, to consider kind of like, um, are the moral arguments that are common out there, like, are, are some of these maybe um, better suited to basic income than others?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, And we can also notice the difference between a work ethic or a money making ethic that you apply to yourself, I want to go out there and earn money and and feel you know, that feels important to me versus is this a norm that I want to impose on other people. And that can be the argument that causes people to want to withhold basic income from everyone else. Let's go to Kate, and then Michael.
4: All right, so a lot of the discussion this evening had to do with how best to respond to opponents to basic income. So in my closing remarks, I just want to come back to stress that there's a lot of disagreement among basic income supporters. Some supporters see basic income as a way to patch up capitalism, make capitalism work better. Some basic income supporters see it as a way to overhaul capitalism, a path to radical systems change. Um, Some basic income supporters continue to support the money-making ethic. Some oppose it. Some basic income supporters do see the policy as a way to overthrow assumptions about the Protestant work ethic. Others think that a basic income would promote more work, and so on and so on. And there is a disagreement about um, facts among supporters, like predictions of what the consequences of a basic income would be. And there's also a lot of fundamental disagreement in values. For one more example, a couple of people have said so far tonight, just in passing, that productivity growth is good, as if this were part of the common ground is something that everyone can agree to. I don't agree with that whatsoever. In fact, I think that one of the best arguments for basic income is that economic degrowth, you know, planned controlled recession, which I believe is necessary, um, would be facilitated by some type of job independent income security. I'm not going to argue for that now. I believe that the next one of these episodes that I'll appear on has to do with environmental issues. So if you're interested in why I believe this and why I think it's important, tune into that one. I'm sure it will come up there. I also incidentally impose road building to a large degree, especially in national parks and conservation areas. Otto Leopold once said that to build a road is so much simpler than to think of what a country really needs. But whether we're talking about roads or talking about basic income, i just want to stress the importance that supporters frame their own views in a way that reveals their own underlying beliefs and values and thus their underlying differences and this is what we need to move discussion forward when we're not just talking about a basic income with, with a superficial agreement but really talking about how we want society to be um, people need to frame their own arguments and beliefs in a way that makes their differences plain instead of just trying to figure out some kind of common frame that's most useful.
0: I love it, yeah. And and I have to say that if all basic income supporters uh, agreed with each other on everything, uh, then this podcast would be incredibly boring and probably wouldn't exist in the first place. Uh, So October 21st in two weeks is when we're gonna have the discussion on resource conservation and Kate is gonna be back for that one. So if you guys are interested, tune into that. Let's go to Michael.
5: Derek said that Alex likes to deflect to economics and not the moral stuff. I, mean, I think that's a nice way of putting it. And I understand why. I mean, I teach economics, so I understand why. And, and some of the questions are economic. Will it cause inflation? Things like that. How much will it affect labor, su- labor supply if we had a UBI? Um, those are all economic, economic questions. But like Carl, I don't think you can avoid the moral ones, even if you wanted to. I don't think you can. And one reason that hasn't come up yet is, and I just I just end with that. Even if people do share values, even if they share the same values, people weight them differently. They prioritize them differently, right? And once you once you like think about that, then some people might be willing to trade off a little bit of one for the other, right? So like Alex, you focus on like the efficiency of the economy. Like the efficiency of the economy, it's optimal to have a UBI, et cetera, et cetera. But someone who believes in the importance of not allowing folks to be, to use Carl's word, parasites, they're willing to trade off some economic efficiency to not let people be parasites. So, so people, like, they prioritize values differently, and the way they do that is going to be tied to, like, some kind of moral belief, a moral, moral system of belief. So it just, to me, it just can't be avoided.
0: Okay, good stuff, and for people who are interested in the parasite issue or the free rider problem, we did a whole one of these discussions on the free rider problem. You can find it on our YouTube channel. I see in the in the chat, Conrad has said, if everybody's brain functioned in a hyperlogical way, maybe the moral question wouldn't be so constructive, but making change requires public support and the public thinks in allegories, anecdotes and morals, posing the question morally is the only way to get things done in the real world, I think, and he's also honored to be confused with Derek. Um, <laughs> so, so I think if we want to sell it to the public, you know, there's a question of what kind of message do we want? What kind of rhetoric do we want to use? What kind of moral framing do we want to have? But someone said, it might have been Carl or Michael, someone said, or maybe it was Conrad, actually, who said that economists kind of think outside or think they're thinking outside of moral framework at, at the very least. Uh, and I think economists are a big part of of who we want to convince. And I know some some people here tonight are economists, but you know, mainstream economists at large are not uh, thinking about basic income, or maybe they're starting to a little bit with Coronavirus and Andrew Yang and all of that. But they're not thinking about basic income as something that fits into their models of how the macroeconomy works. And I think, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, that's a big not big in terms of numbers, but big in terms of importance, a big group of people that we kind of need to get thinking about basic income at a deeper level. And the public is important too. And I think there's arguments to be made for moral framing there. Whether basic income is inherently a moral issue, a lot of people in here would say that it is, and some people would not. Uh, I would be one of the ones who would would not say that. But it was a great discussion tonight, as it is every week. Uh, And it was great having you guys on. Next week's discussion, we have two featured guests, uh, Robert Hockett and Aaron James, authors of this book, Money from Nothing. And we're going to be talking about their book. And that's going to be a lot of fun. I encourage people to come back for that one. And thanks, everyone, for participating.